Amen, amen. I find it offensive, Pastor Andy, that the kids would need activity sheets with the sermon that I'm about to preach. They will not need those sheets. Or they, or they might. Uh, welcome, I'm Ryan, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're in the middle of a series in Colossians. And uh, I'm going to be reading uh, verses 15 to 23 this morning. I know we preached, Andy preached last week from uh, 15 to, to 20, but I'm going to read that whole section and you'll see uh, in a minute why I'm, I'm doing that. I want to give us the kind of context of, of what Paul, the author here, is saying uh, from Colossians and it will make more sense if we read the whole thing uh, this morning in its context and Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is just absolutely amazing and breathtaking, so we should just read it anyway. And do that. So Colossians 1, verse 15, if you have a Bible, uh, or if you need a Bible, there should be a chair Bible around you. Page 983. So Colossians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let us pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we stand before Colossians 1, and it's almost ridiculous that I'm going to try to explain what in the world is going on here. It's almost silly for us to try to comprehend the God of everything, the Lord of everything, the the maker, the redeemer, the reconciler of all things, the creator of all things, who not only holds every atom and every sunset and every sunrise and all the seasons and all of human history of where it's going and where it's headed, but also this God that knows every hair on our head and every need in this place, in this moment, this God that somehow I'm supposed to describe what that is and and who you are. God, have mercy on me, help me, and help us to hear and receive what you've shown us here in your word, God. That, God, this is our story, one you've invited us into because of the work of Jesus. And we're only here because of you, God. So help us hear, God, and help us not just be hearers of your word, but also doers as well. So help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Andy looked at uh, verses 15 to 20, and, and what we see here is, is what many theologians think is a early hymn of the early church, a, a song of the early church, a way to, to frame their, their lives and to frame their story of this is who we are, this is who the, this Christ is, this is kind of the, the 30,000 foot view of God and, and what he's accomplished for us in Christ and that he's the, the maker and the, the redeemer that it's through him and for him that all things are made, that, that Jesus is the head 
head of the church and by uh, the cross, he has made peace with us that by his death, we can know God and have peace with God. This, this massive panoramic view and, and Andy probably felt overwhelmed. And that's probably why I gave him the text was like, Hey, good luck with this. Um, th- there's so much there. There's so much depth. He could probably have preached, you know, for nine weeks or nine years just on those few verses. But the reason I read the whole section this morning is because this morning we're going to look at 21 to 23, and there's one, or I should say two little verses that are very significant in 21, but now it says, and you. That, that, that Paul steps back and, and he has this 30,000 foot view of the, the Lord of everything, and now he's saying, let's make it personal, personable, let's make it personal, let's get it down on the ground level. So, so this early church is, is struggling. There's some false teaching coming in. And, and almost always when there's false teaching in the Bible, it is adding to this gospel, adding to the faith. That, that, that yeah, you're a Christian, but you need to follow certain laws and commands. Yeah, you're a Christian, but you need to worship angels. Yeah, you're a Christian, but you need to follow certain kind of customs. You need to wear certain kinds of clothes. You need to hang around certain kinds of people. And we want to say no, and, and that is not the gospel that we preach. That our faith is rooted in the work of Jesus in time and in space and in history. And we don't add anything to it. If you add anything to it, it's a blasphemy to God who says, what, the cross wasn't enough for you? The resurrection wasn't enough for you? And so what we get through Colossians is this thread of, are they trying to add something to the faith? Is there more things that we need to be good Christians, to be in the family? And obviously we say, no, of course not. Christ has done it all. He's the maker. He's the redeemer. In him, we have everything we need. But Paul wants to make sure that it gets down to the grassroots level. It gets down into our lives to say, this is who you are now in light of what this Christ has done for you. And in light of who this this Jesus is. So when I thought about this few verses this week, one thing came to mind, and, and this may date me, and it's funny even to say this from the pulpit, the, the fact that this would date me, but um, there, there's these, these places that we used to go uh, back in the day called the mall. <laughs> Any partakers? Um, and the mall was where life happened for a teenage kid, as myself, middle school, high school. The mall was the place, right? I mean, you, you go into the mall, and there are 30, 40, 50 stores where you can actually go and buy things. And you can go to this, this international feast and festivity of food in the food court. Sabaro pizza. Amen? Usually some kind of Chinese food that's a little bit sketchy. Maybe some Mexican food, Right? Served with people in paper hats. Remember Orange Julius? I mean, we got to mix that in there too, right? I still don't understand that place. It's still a thing, apparently. But there was this, this, this amazing place. Most of the kids in this room were like, Dad, Mom, what's a mall? You know, what, what is that? We don't have those anymore. Maybe there's like one in Kansas City that people actually go to. Um, I could be off on that. But when you go to this amazing place in the mall, there's the one thing you must do at the beginning, and that is to go to the directory. And at the directory, you're going to get a list of stores and you're going to find, and now I'm a man, and so I need to find that one store, go to the store, get my business done and and go. But if you're a woman, usually it's a lot of browsing, a lot of just window shopping and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing that I'm looking for, because the mall is, depending on which mall you are around, I, I grew up in LA, so the malls are fairly large, was there was a little red dot and it said, you are here. You remember this? 
you are here. Maybe by Sears, maybe by JCPenney, maybe by uh, KB Toys, but you are here. It grounded you. So you knew where to go or where not to go. Or... And when I thought about this text this week, is that's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to us as God's people is you are here because of what Christ has done. This is what's going to ground you. If you want to know what your life is about, you want to know where you are, it has nothing to do with who, if you're married or not, it has nothing to do with if you have kids or not, it has nothing to do with job you have, but as God's people, imagine the God of heaven and earth telling us in tangible, communicated form that you are here. This is what has happened to you, in case you're wondering. And Paul wants to remind the church of that in light of who God is. And so... I want to look at these just three verses this morning to figure out what has happened to us and why that is significant. And the way to frame it and the way Paul frames it very nicely is is really he looks at what happened to you in the past, what happened to you now, or where are you now, and then what is going to happen in the future? What does this look like into the future? So there's a a past reality, there's a present reality, and there's a a future reality from these three verses uh, this morning. So what happened to us in the past? Well, notice in verse 21, and you who once were, so past, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Good way to start a sermon, right? Like, sheesh, that wasn't very encouraging, Pastor. That's, that's who I was. I mean, geez, that, that seems a little bit harsh. I mean, Paul is, is not holding back any punches here. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. This is who you were. Now, Paul is talking to a predominantly Gentile church in this letter. And so, not, as opposed to many Jewish people who came to Christ, who, who would have known the scriptures, who would have known the Old Testament, known the customs, known the laws, but he's talking to a predominantly pagan Gentile uh, group of people, what, which is significant because the Gentiles had many different gods, many different practices, and they didn't worship just one god. They had all kinds of gods and, and had many different philosophies and many different beliefs. And so he's identifying that and he's saying that's who you were before Christ, before this reconciling God that you read about a few verses before, this God who's reconciling all things by the cross. Before that happened to you, this is who you were. If you went to the directory of your life in the mall and found that dot, that's who you were. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But what does alienation mean? That can be a strange word. Like, what does Paul specifically mean about alienation? Well, this word alienated means to be cut off or separated. I think even a better way of reading it is there's, you have no citizenship or country of origin. Right? When you're born, you have a country of origin. My wife was born in Canada. Don't hold that against her. But that's her country of origin and her mother, too. We don't hold that against her as well. So on your birth certificate, you have a country of origin. And so, so when Paul looks at our lives before God, he says, says what sin does is it cuts us off and it doesn't give us a country of origin. It doesn't give us roots. We're just wandering in the world. It doesn't matter where you were born or what family you have or what generation you were born in, but you're, you're simply wandering around separated from God, separated from other people, separated from, from all things because of sin. We have no country of origin. We have no citizenship. And Paul in other letters plays on that, right? Where our citizenship is in heaven. 
Right? He, he's rooting them. He's saying, this is who you used to be. You didn't have, you worshipped all these different gods. You had all these different philosophies. But now I'm giving you a country of origin. I'm giving you hope in a time, in a place, in a family, in Christ Jesus. But for that to happen, as Andy brought out last week, is reconciliation had to happen between us and God. A new relationship. And that's just a very relational term. It's when, when a relationship is fractured, it needs to be reconciled. It needs to be mended. It need, the parties need to come back together in harmony. And you see, when our lives are not in harmony with God and with Christ, we simply wander in the world, looking and grasping for anything to give us hope and meaning and identity. Paul uses the same language in, in Ephesians 2, very um, familiar passage if you've been around the scriptures. If you haven't, one of the, the, the realities of, of the work of Christ in the gospel in Ephesians 2, 12, is he says this, remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, talking about Gentiles again, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So he's saying you, you, Jews knew, at least knew the scriptures and had the Old Testament and, and knew the promises, but you didn't have any of that. And most of us in this room, probably all of us are Gentiles, so we didn't you know, have that or, or just intuitively know that. But he says, having no hope and without God in the world. Hopeless, wandering, no citizenship. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off from being, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So by the, the, the death, the sacrifice of Christ, he has reconciled us to himself. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken us down in his flesh by the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments, express in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So, so Christ's reconciling work is not just us being reconciled to God. It is in an we should praise God for that and shout and celebrate, of course. But it's also a horizontal reconciling, as, as Paul mentions here, that the Jews and the Gentiles are being reconciled and all humans are being reconciled together. In our common bond, God is making one humanity, one people. And that's why Paul's going to say later in, in Galatians, you know, there is no Greek, there is no, no male, there is no female. God is making one community, one humanity of people that are following Christ Jesus, that have been reconciled to their maker and reconciled to e each other. But before Christ, you had no hope and you were just wandering around in the world. Do, do we see ourselves this way? Do, do you realize that's, if you're in Christ Jesus, that's who you used to be? You had no hope. You're just grasping for any kind of semblance of identity, of life, of salvation, of, of anything. And, and I, know, I know what goes off in our heads when we say that. You say, you know, my life wasn't that bad. But on the ultimate sense, that anyone that tries to live their lives apart from their maker simply disintegrates. Because God has made us to know him. He's made us in his image, and then he made us to, to worship him and know him, to find life in him. That when we try to live our lives apart from him, it, we simply disintegrate, and we just wander and as the Bible says, well, sin is what separates us, which leads to death, and death ultimately leads to hell, a separation, an internal separation from our Maker, our God. And that sounds harsh, but God has to be just. He's a just God. As C.S. Lewis would say, you know, God is simply just giving us what we already want. We, we, if we don't want our Maker, we don't want our re Redeemer, then we, we simply are just living our lives over here, just wandering around saying, I don't need that. But that's who we used to be. We, we were alienated. We didn't have a home of origin. 
I found an interesting article um, that, that came out a few weeks ago. There's a, a guy named David Brooks. He's kind of an kind of interesting guy. I don't know his, his faith story, but, um, but, he, but he wrote a, uh, an article about the blindness of social wealth. And, and he was talking about our loneliness as a culture. And, and he says, there's a mountain of evidence suggesting that the quantity of our relationships have been in steady decline for decades. In the 80s, 20% of Americans said they were often lonely. Now it's 40%. Suicide rates are now at a 30-year high. Depression rates have increased tenfold since 1960, which is not only a result of great report, greater reporting. Most children born to mothers under 30 are born outside of marriage. There's been a steady 30-year decline in American satisfaction with the peer-to-peer relationships at work. And then former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, interesting name, summarized his evidence as a doctor in an article in September in the Harvard Business Review. He says this, During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. Patients came to him partly because they were lonely, partly because loneliness made them sick. Weak social connections have health effects similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and a greater negative effect than obesity, he said. Now, I appreciate David Brooks, but the one thing I know and I have an advantage of is because I understand the scriptures, and I think you do too, is that his identifying the loneliness in our culture doesn't go far enough because it's not just horizontal, it's vertical that the seeds of loneliness are a loneliness for God. That's where it stems from. And so our searching and our, and our hoping and our connection, and we wonder, why, what is life about? Why is there depression? Why is you know, there lacking joy? It's because ultimately we're made for God, and so we just wander without hope in the world, separated from God. And so then what happens is instead of grabbing onto God first and then flowing into reconciled relationships, we grab onto rec- relationships first and say, well, maybe this relationship will fix me. Maybe it'll give me the, jo- the love and the joy that I thought it would give that I wouldn't feel like I'm wandering disconnected from the universe and my God. But we also know that you get two sinners in a room, if you're married, it goes bad often. You get two friends in a room, it goes bad often. So we were alienated, we were, we were cut off. But, it, but he also says that we were hostile in mind. It's like, sheesh, Paul, I mean, come on. I mean, this, this, is, who we, this is who we were? And, and hostile means enemies of, in mind. It's a, it's a posture of, of mind and heart that our minds were warped. They were bent away from God. And it doesn't mean that, that we were uh, just apathetic toward God. It actually means we were antagonistic toward God. That's what hostility is. It's not mere, yeah, I could take God or leave him, or, or, or yeah, I could take Christianity or leave him. It was actually built in hostility built-in antagonism towards God. Well, you say, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an open-minded, tolerant person. I mean, I don't hate God. I don't hate Christians, right? I mean, is that really, is he really going to describe me in that way? 
But the scriptures are going to tell us time and time again, yes, that's exactly what he, how he's going to describe us because that's our story before Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, you remember these, these texts. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. You were once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That he lumps us all together. That's who we, we, we were, our minds, our hearts, our lives, the posture before God. We're all bent towards away from our maker, away from our creator. And it wasn't just mere apathy. It wasn't just, yeah, take it or leave it. It's, I don't want anything to do with you. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. I can be smarter than you, God. I know what's best for my life. And you know, here's, here's what's terrifying about that reality is that most of us don't think that's us. Because here's what we say. I'm not all out rejecting God, even though I'm not a Christian. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at Christians. I'm not... Which could be true in one sense. But everything in our lives points away from God. That the Redeemer, the Maker who gave you breath and life and food and fajitas and guacamole and children and marriage and books and all the things that you get to enjoy and marriage. And, and I mean, this morning, I mean, if you weren't praising Jesus, I mean, I know the kids, it can be a nightmare, but, but, it, but the beautiful weather, I mean, come on. That heavens and earth declare the glory of God. I hope there was a lot of thanksgiving in your heart this morning. But, but, but if that's not you, then you're basically saying, I don't need that. I reject that. That's, that's, that's something else. I don't give you credit for that. It's not mere apathy. It's a bent away from God. It's a turning away from God. Ephesians 4.17 says that they, they walked in futility of mind. That, that their, their minds and their hearts and their posture before God were not taking in the realities of God, but they were pushing it away. And, and then Romans 1, I think, is one of the most helpful things that kind of le- puts everyone on the hook <laughs> in, in maybe a terrifying way, but I think in a hopeful way as well, because this is all of our stories before Christ, is that in Romans 1, Paul's going to say in 21, for although they knew God, what? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God and images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God excuse me, gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creation, Creator rather than the Creator who is blessed forever and ever. That God is, Paul is saying that, that even in general revelation, even the fact that you can walk outside and see the sunset and the sunrise and something kind of stirs up in you when you stand over the Grand Canyon, no one ever goes, I'm awesome. If you do, you need some serious counseling. Right? Like look at these biceps as you stand over the Grand Canyon. No one does that. You stand in awe. You stand in wonder of what you're seeing, right? I mean, there's something in us when you hear that, that, that beautiful piece of classical music and it just resonates in you. If you come to, to watch Providence School of the Arts and you see kids do this play and you see Oliver just doing an amazing job with Pete the Cat because we knew every story. It was, it was really amazing. And you just go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. 
But this like first grader has like that much courage to stand up on stage and not wet himself. I don't know how he, he, he does that. <laughs> because that was my story. Uh, and it's a sense of humor I'm even up here. I haven't wet myself, but you know, sorry, too much information. Sorry. <laughs> but you see, God has revealed his knowledge, his power from the things we can even see, the, the ordering of the seasons, the, the way the atoms and molecules work together, the way you, you see that little baby as you hold her in, in your lap and she just smiles at you. And my, my baby girl just, I already have my wallet out. I'm just like, here, just take it. Just whatever you want, honey. I have three boys. We just had a girl, and it's, it's all over. But, but something stirs up in you. And we, and we can't just say, well, that's just chemistry. That's just molecules. That's just synapses. There's something deeper going on there. And, and so we exchange the truth of what has been revealed, and instead of worshiping our creator God, we worship the creation, the things that he's made. We put more weight and more energy and more value and salvation and hope on those things instead of God himself. Now, one of the things I I found really helpful years and years and years ago when I started following Christ was a text that came from Jeremiah uh, chapter 2. You might be familiar with this text if you've been around the scriptures at all, but listen to the way that Jeremiah describes evil. Because I think sometimes we have this weird thing of evil. We say, well, evil is you know, people that kill, kill others or shoot someone in a shooting and, and, and at a school. Of course, you know, 9-11, whatever. You know, the, the, yes, those are evil things, of course. But, but what's underneath that? Like, why does that happen? Like, why does it get to that point? Look at the way Jeremiah describes evil. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It sounds like Romans 1. They've exchanged the truth of our maker, the the one who offers us living, lasting, eternal water and life, God, for cisterns, these these jugs of water that they they would go into the desert, get the water and bring it back to the family or bring it back to the community. They've decided they're going to make their own instead of taking the living water that's eternal, that's that's joyful, that that is lasting, that won't forsake us, won't give up on us as we sang this morning. We're going to make our own little cisterns that don't even hold water, that are cracked at best. And we're going to worship those things, our cracked little cisterns. We're going to worship God's stuff instead of God, the great exchange. That's the heart of evil. And that's why it leads to all these other things. And that's why the scriptures talk that way. It's not just, a, all of us think Christianity is just a list of rules and just, okay, don't do this, don't do, 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 do. But, but it always gets underneath that and says, no, 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 no. Where it starts is, the God who's made all things and the God who is redeeming all things, the God who has saved you, the God who is forgiving you, the God who's reconciling us by his son to the cross, right? Even go to the Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. We read that so poorly, right? Some of us grew up in, in Sunday school. It's just like God hates liars, God hates liars. But if you read the Ten Commandments, we don't want to be liars, of course not. We don't want to commit adultery. We don't want to murder. Of course not. But what does even the Ten Commandments do? If you read the beginning of, of Exodus 20, it says, 
I have saved you. I have redeemed you from Egypt. You are my people. Now, go live in light of these things. Worship me first. Have me the center of your life. Now, go live in light of these things. Let me be your ultimate good and joy and hope and salvation. And then now, go live a life worthy of me. It doesn't start the other way around. If you behave, if you're moral, if you get it all together, if you show up to church, you know, maybe something three times on, on a Sunday, if you, if you do all those things, then maybe I'll bless you. Maybe I'll throw you a gospel bone. That's not how this works. And some of us are still there, trying so hard to be something or someone rather than resting in the grace and mercy of Christ, trying to even be obedient and to walk and live a life worthy of Him. But you're not starting with the grace and mercy that's been extended to you. You're starting with, I got to do it and I got to be a certain kind of person. And this is really, really hard. It's impossible if we don't realize what's really happened to us. And it all starts with God, the God who made us and the God who redeemed us and the God who reconciled us. Which, is, which makes total sense why Paul says, and doing evil deeds. Because instead of looking to your reconciler, the one who's making all things new, the one who's making you right, the one who's made peace by his blood, we're looking to everything else. The result is always going to be, I'm going to trust and I'm going to love and I'm going to put all my energy into this thing that's not God and it's never going to satisfy the way we want it to. So, so you may ask yourself, well, you know, I, I just don't think my friends, my family, my coworkers are hostile to God and, and, and evil. I mean, they're, they're nice people. They're, they're enlightened people. They're educated people. It just seems like they're, they're trying to, to be, you know, trying to get along in the world. Like, I just don't, I, I just feel like that's really, really harsh. And this is where I would ask a question. And I would ask it of you, Christian family, and I'd ask it from, to my non-Christian friends, too. It all depends how you define evil. It all dep- depends if you see it in the Jeremiah way or you see it some other way. Because we all do it, right? Well, I didn't kill anyone. Like, that's the bar. Like, most people haven't and probably won't. But that's where Jesus gets us, doesn't he? But if you have anger in your heart, you've already murdered. Anybody angry? <clears throat> All right. That's Bill. He doesn't know how to use his phone. <laughs> well, I, have, <laughs> I haven't. I've been faithful to my wife. You ever had lust in your heart? Got quiet, didn't it? Jesus is always going a little bit further, isn't he? We set the bar actually really low for ourselves and say, well, I'm, I'm doing okay. But this is where I would ask those questions, and here's what I would ask. I would also ask, well, we're... In your life, what absorbs all your energy, your imagination, your time, your money that's not God? This cause, driving a Prius, recycling, political party, being seen as a certain way, certain kind of job, hanging out with certain kind of people, hobbies, whatever it is, right? What absorbs all of that time? The, the thing that you obsess over, you think about, and, and, and give money to and sacrifice to, that is your God. doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. I would use the same language. We are bowing and sacrificing to a God. You have a faith system even if you don't believe in Christ. We all do it, right? 
And then I would say, what is the thing in your life if it was taken away, you wouldn't be able to live any longer? That's what we call an idol. We would never want our spouses to, to be taken away or our kids, but it also reveals where our hope truly lies. Right? What's that thing in your hand that you say, if you take that from me, God, oh, I will never forgive you. That's your idol. And that's what idolatry and sin is. It's, idolatry is the sin beneath the sin, right? It's easy to just play the game. I don't murder. I don't lie. I, I pay my taxes. I drive a, a Prius. But, but why do you, what's in the heart that makes you angry? What, what's in the heart that makes you attach yourself to things that aren't God to find identity and worth? Is it power? Is it success? Is it money? Is it, is it dressing a certain way? Is it, is it being cool? Is it, is, it, is it knowing all the cool films and all the cool stuff that's going on? Does that give me identity and hope? What is that thing? And I know for you and I know for me, there are many things that are poor God replacements that I grab onto all the time. Because we were alienated, we were hostile in mind, but we're also doing evil deeds, taking the good things of creation. And and here's where it gets really scary and and crazy is that they're typically really good things. God-given good things, right? That we put all of our hope and identity in. Like if someone comes up to me after the service and offers me drugs, it's not a problem. Like there's not a long conversation there. Well, should I? And I say probably for most of us. I know we got some recovering addicts in here. That's, that's cool. It might be a little more struggle. Like, oh, should I? I don't know. Yeah. But it's work. It's family. It's good, God-given things that I put so much weight and value in and on, often crushing them and and making them into little gods. And when they're not satisfying my emotional needs and my God-given needs, they get crushed in the process. Like, I love my kids. My kids are in this room. Hi, Noah. But Noah knows it, too. Noah's a terrible God. He thinks he's God in our home, but he is a terrible God. And he knows daddy's a terrible God. And mommy. And Christy is not a great God. She always betrays me and I betray her, right? I'm not meant to put my weight on her and what is reserved for God. But, but when I get that and I, and I find that, just as Paul's going to move us into where are we now when we're reconciled to Christ, I can love her and I can serve her and I can die to myself and I can love and care for my kids and not put a weight that only God was meant to be put on me and on them. That I can go to work and I can work with integrity and I can work for the glory of God, not putting a weight on that vocation to be something it never was meant to be. That's why the psalmist is always talking about idols and he's always, you know, David's like, yeah, these idols that can't see or speak or move or, right? I mean, that's the the irony of idols. They don't talk back. (laughs) They don't give us what we need. It's like, come on, where are you? Right? Maybe a little moment of, of joy, a little moment of satisfaction, but it just, it just blows away with the wind. So where are we now? So where are we, we now? Paul makes it very clear from 22. This is who you were, but this is who you, you are because of what Christ has done. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present your holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
And he mentioned last week in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Those are amazing, beautiful texts for us to understand. This is where you are. When you go to the directory of your life that you used to be alienated, used to be separated, no home of origin, that you were wandering around with no, no hope, an enemy of God, filling your life with everything but God, these empty cisterns that just don't satisfy. But now that you're trusting in your greatest treasure, your greatest good, your greatest love, now that's who you are. And it's all because of the reconciling work of Christ, who's offered us peace through his blood, through his sacrifice, that he, he bled out so that we could have life. He bled out so that we could have forgiveness. He, he went to the far country so that we could come in and have citizenship in heaven. But it's all his work. The broken cisterns of our lives cannot be fixed with mere willpower and self-help and positive thinking. They go much deeper. They need blood. They need sacrifice. They need supernatural miracles from the inside out. And that's what Jesus does. And, and what's interesting about the way G, or, uh, Paul phrases this verse, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. There's some kind of heresy going on here that Paul feels the need to be very specific and say there was a bodily, physical death in time and space and history. Not a mystical example or some kind of weird spiritual death, but Jesus literally was strung up on a cross and literally died in bodily form, and his blood spilled out. You can read pagan philosophers of that day and have and find that that was true, that he was a man who lived in time and in space, that the things he did and said actually happened. You can look at the scriptures and all the thousands of eyewitnesses. You can, you, you can, can see that this was not just something that happened in our hearts, but it was a historical reality that his death and resurrection happened in time and space. Why that's significant? Because your faith is not built on feeling or spiritual knowledge per se, but it's based on historical events that happened. Think about that. The days when you just feel overwhelmed by your own sin. I know in this room we have we have a lot of just hurt hurts and pains. We got family members with cancer. We we got depression, anxiety. We 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 got people we don't know if they're even going to live another week. Our emotions are often all over the map. But what brings me great comfort and hopefully you is that I have to remember that something happened in time and space to make me right with God. That his body was literally broken so that I could be reconciled to him. I don't need some secret knowledge or some positive thinking, but I go back to what I know is true and what is, is right because that was the heresy that was, was, was kind of creeping in. It was like, well, yeah, that's nice, but, but there's another knowledge. There's another reality that you can tap into. And as we are born again by the Spirit of God, we can begin to believe those things and walk in those things. And God gives us eyes to see that it's not just a great example of love. It's not just a philosophy, but it's real and it happened.
But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, you've been reconciled by the cross. You've been made right with God. In order, there's a purpose behind it, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And I think those phrases help you understand what Christ actually did on the cross for you. Because in of yourself, you are not holy, and you are not blameless, and you are not above reproach. Are we? Amen? Thanks be to the God, right? If we have to stand before God and say, God, look, I voted the right way. I recycled. I was a good guy. I was kind of faithful to my, my wife. I, I didn't kill anyone. I, I, you know, I tried to be a decent dad. If I, if I stood before God and he was to, to, to show up on this screen, all my sins, all my shortcomings, all the ways I've hurt other people, all the things I've, I've done to God, it would not be a pleasant day for me or anyone that stood before the face of God. So something had to happen. Jesus had to reconcile us to himself. His righteousness had to become our own. He had to wipe the slate clean. He had to make a way for us to be holy without spot and blemless before him so that we could even stand in his presence. I love that word above reproach. It's the same word we use for elder qualifications. It's, it's to, to, to live this life just out in the open and say, hey, there's, there's nothing against me. You can't judge me on anything here because Christ has already done it for me. And, and I can stand in his presence and I can stand before him. And he sees me as holy and blameless, clean, forgiven, as if I never sinned. I, I noticed this morning I have this. It's actually why I don't wear this shirt all the time. I'll just let you in on a secret. It's a little stain right there. Can't get that thing out. It's kind of blue, so it kind of blends in. I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's just indigestion, but I thought about that this morning. Ryan, there's no stains on your shirt anymore. That when I stand before God, it's a white, clean undershirt with no spot, no blemish. And that's who you are, too. That when you go to the directory of your life and you find that you are here, that's how Jesus sees you. You believe that? I think for some of us, we don't believe that. Still the guy, still the gal trying to be something, be someone. Oh, I screwed up again. We don't see ourselves as, as, as clothed in the righteousness of Christ, as pure, as spotless, that these stains that are on our shirts, these stains that are in our lives have been done away with, that we can stand before him blameless and holy, that we can even begin to attempt to live holy lives because of this reality. And I find it so astounding that, can we, I mean, it's almost, it just almost gets crazy when you read the scriptures because when you, you take it even another step for, further is that in Paul in Ephesians 1 is actually going to root this reality in eternity past. Like, really? I mean, Paul, can we do it even, can we make it even more massive and more beautiful? Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 1? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation before the foundation of the world before there was nothing before there was not you or me or animals or creation or anything that we should be holy and blameless before him. Your salvation was rooted in the eternity past. I would say that's some serious assurance of salvation. 
I'm not just going to root it in your present reality that you've been reconciled with Christ, that as you are trusting in Christ, but I'm going to root it all the way back before there was time. That was God's plan in your life always and forever. That cannot be taken away on your worst day. I remember a friend years ago, he gave this illustration, and I thought it was really helpful. He says, Ryan, imagine you go to work one day, two different days. One day you, you, you go to work, and you just have a horrible day. You're, just, you're lashing out. You're yelling at Andy. You're, you're just doing all these things. You're you know, sending nasty emails to the elders. You just Things are falling apart. You just realize, I'm just going to quit the ministry. It's just it's terrible. Why do I even care? Another email came and you know, didn't like my sermon, whatever it is, right? Just the, the worst day possible. I get home, and it's just like kids are just annoying me, and I'm just like, I just want to lay on the couch and watch ESPN and, and watch the, you know, hopefully the Cavs win game seven today. And, you know, I just all of those things... And then he says, imagine another day where you come home and and you're just walking on water. Like, read the scripture and like levitated just a little bit. Like Jesus showed up in my office in tangible form and gave me a hug. Every word that came out of my mouth that day to Andy was kind and encouraging and built him up in the Lord. And he just all day long, he's just like, Ryan, you're just the, the nicest, kindest, you know, you just love Jesus. I mean, just all day long, right? I come home and I got a, a bouquet of flowers for my wife. Like the expensive kind. Not the cheap Trader Joe's $3 deal. Like the $400 ones at the real flower shop. And my kids come and they, they come into my lap and they just go, Daddy, I'm so glad you're home. You're the best daddy ever. Thank you for loving us and providing for us and, and being everything we want in a dad. Now, I'm being facetious. I Hopefully you've granted that. But if you look at both of those days, God doesn't love me anymore or any less. He may be pleased with me a little more on maybe a different day where I'm actually loving and and kind, but in the grand scheme of everything, he doesn't love me any less. Reconciliation is still intact. I'm still holy and blameless. It's still intact. I still stand before him above reproach, intact on my worst day. Because my faith was actually rooted all the way back in eternity past. And God doesn't break his promises and God doesn't take it away on our bad days. That's what you and I are caught up in. It's that deep. It goes that far. But what does that mean as we we go go forward? Where where do we live? How do we live into the the future? What does that that look like? You know, when we think about the you are here on the directory of the mall, what, what does that mean? Well, Paul ends this little section with these very encouraging words. 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, continue in life by faith in what? The gospel. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What does it look to continue on? What, what does faith look like? All this reconciling work has happened. We're now in Christ. We, we have peace with, with God. We used to be alienated. We used to have, not have a country. We used to be sinners who loved God's stuff more than we loved Him. But now we're, we're here. We're, this is our lives. This is our story. We're, we're rooted in it. What does it look like? It looks like hope, faith in the gospel. 
That's where your steadiness and your steadfastness comes from. It doesn't come from your feelings. It doesn't come from your circumstances. It doesn't come with, I need to get religious. I need to add more things to my life. He's actually saying, no, 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 no. It's always unshakably in the gospel, which is another way of saying it's always unshakably looking at Christ Jesus and his work on your behalf. We do not stray from that ever. On your best day and on your worst day, Hebrews chapter 12, look to the author and perfecter of your faith. Hebrews, 1, Hebrews 2, don't drift from the great salvation. Keep looking there. Keep looking there. Why do we not keep looking there? And when we stop looking and we, we shift our gaze, what happens is we end up over here on the, 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 the circumstances of life and the shakiness of life and, and all the, the emotions and all the things and I'm a guilty sinner and I'm all this, this stuff and, and yet we're not coming back to the one who bore our sins. Someone once said, every one look at your sin, take ten looks at the cross. Paul in a breathtaking moment says, Just keep looking, finding your hope in Jesus. It's all there. Everything that you need is all there. What I have failed to mention, and what I'm thankful for my seminary education, all the school loans I have, is that I can tell the difference between an imperative and an indicative. Thank you, Calvin Seminary. All the pain and struggle you put in my life. But I can tell the difference between an imperative and indicative. There's one thing I've left out in these passages, and it's simply this. There's not one command in these scriptures. That's an imperative. They're all indicative. Which means an indicative is something that's already true, it's already real, it's already there. It's already yours. It's not something we do. It's not something we earn. It's not something we add to. There's no commands in these scriptures. Why? Because Paul is giving thanksgiving. He's, he's praying at the beginning. And then he goes into this song. And, and he, he's saying this is who Christ is. And this is our, our Redeemer. And, and, and it's for Him. And all things hold together in Him. And He's made reconciliation for their blood. He's not saying do anything. He's not saying now get morality. Now get religion. Now do something. Now be a good person. He's not saying that at all. He's saying enter into the song. It's yours. Come and sing with us. Come and join in the chorus. It's all yours. And that's what makes Christianity so different. This isn't law. This isn't, you know, do more things and then God will somehow love you. It's enter into the song that's already begun and it begun with the cross of Christ and his resurrection. He's inviting you in to sing along and join the chorus. He's not beating them up with Church, you need to do more. You need to show and prove that you're worthy. What he's assuming actually in this continuing faith is that this is just normal Christianity. That's why it's an indicative. Continue on in what you already know and where your hope is already found. Don't look anywhere else. That's where your steadfastness and your stability will come. And this is really interesting, um, the fact we sang that the solid rock this morning. I actually had that song in my head and I was going to ask the, the worship team to sing it and they sang it anyways. But my hope is built on nothing less than Christ and his righteousness. That's the ballast of your boat. That's where your steadiness and your steadfastness comes from. 
with anything going in your life. I, I, I don't pretend for a moment that we're all put together in here and we've got all kinds of things going on in here, including your pastor. But we need laser focus on the one who reconciled us to himself. On the one whose righteousness has been given to us as if we've never sinned before. And, and we join in this course. We join in this song. We, we, you know, one thing I know about music is that you have to listen, but you have to listen attentively. <laughs> it's easy to have the music playing in the background and just kind of as you work, you know, Spotify, and it's just kind of spinning around. But, but, but there's something about being attentive to the song. Are we attentive to the song? What are you putting into your life so that you can be attentive to the song? It's why we gather on Sundays. It's why we do city groups. It's why we have DNAs and men's ministries and women's ministries. It's why we have friends who invite each other over. How can we help each other be more attentive to the song? That Ryan, this is your song. This is your story. Blaine and Elizabeth, this is your song. And Michaela and Casey, this is your song. How can we help each other be better listeners to that song? And it's not about doing more. It's about helping us listen better. And one of the, the great um, privileges we have as a, as a church, I think that helps us sing this song really well and to remember what Christ has done is, is the Lord's Supper. That we take it every week. To, to remember the, the, the song that the, Jesus has sung over us by his death and by his resurrection. And he invites us in. He says, come and sing. Let this be your story too. Come into the family. Have your sins forgiven. I, some of you know this, some of you don't, but the, the reason our church is called New City Church is not because I'm all that clever, because um, I'm not. The fact I even use the word clever shows you some of that. But Hebrews 13, it says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, make them holy set apart, blameless. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The word new city church because we believe a new city's coming, a new heavens and a new earth. And so our, our ministry, our lives are all about pointing others to a city that is to come because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices and pleasing to God. He invites us to sing. Jesus went outside the camp. Jesus died. He was destroyed for our sins so that we could come in and we could have a new home and we could have a new country, a new birth of origin in the family of God, in the kingdom of God. He was killed, he was sacrificed, he shed his blood so that we could have life in him. And that's what we're reminded of every week with the simple bread and the cup. That his body was broken, by, represented by the bread, his blood was poured out, represented by the cup. And so if you're in Christ Jesus, your hope is found in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Come and to the feast, come and celebrate. If you found the, the broken cisterns of life to just be left wanting and you found the living waters of Christ, come and drink and eat with us. 
And if you still have questions and hesitation and, and, and are still looking for hope and still looking for those, those waters that will quench ultimately, we've all been there. But we just ask that you would stay seated. We have some prayers in the city life that we'd love for you to, to think on and reflect on. If you have questions about the sermon or want to talk to me about faith, please come and, and talk to me or one of the elders. I'd love to chat with you. But the invitation is on the table. You don't have to fix yourself up. You just have to trust in the one who allows us to sing the song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Colossians. Thank you for Jesus, the one who reconciled us to himself, the one who is reconciling all things cosmically and personally, the one who did what we couldn't do for ourselves so that we could join in the chorus, so that we could sing the same song that the the early church in 2,000 years ago sang. We could sing that with them and all God's people for all of eternity that you would allow us to be your kids. Thank you. And God, as we, we think about that, as we, 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 we begin to reflect on that, God, show us those places where we're not hoping in you, where our hope and our faith is not resting in the work of Christ, but it's resting and hoping in something else that isn't you. God, show us those things. May we confess those things. May we lay those before your feet. And may we find forgiveness and grace. So thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.